good morning, guys, and welcome to week five in a series that we've been doing through this incredible Old Testament book, the book of Jonah. And so in this series, we've actually been going verse by verse through this incredible book of the Old Testament. And so let me just say that if you are a guest with us this morning... Thank you so much for being with us. And we know that there is a lot of things that you could be doing on Sunday morning. And the fact that you would come and spend time with us this morning here today, we count that a privilege. And I just want you to know that. So thanks for being here. But like I said, we are in the fifth week of a series. And so if today, if there's anything that I say that's intriguing to you or anything that you would like to kind of dig into a little more, would encourage you to go back and maybe catch up on the past five weeks of this series. Uh, you can do that if you go to our website. You'll find that there, there's videos there. Uh, you can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or you can download our app. And you can catch up on all of those messages on the ride to work or when you're working out or whatever it is that you want to do. But would encourage you to do that if you get a chance to because uh, we've been covering a lot of ground in this great book, the, the book of uh, Jonah. But like I said, verse by verse study. So today we're actually just going to pick up kind of where we left off last week. And so if you got your Bibles, why don't you grab them with me? Let's go ahead and get right to work. And let's go to Jonah chapter 4. Okay, so Jonah chapter 4. Um, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles there if you would and get that in front of you. Um, if you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, by the way, let me just tell you that's not a problem. We have some Bibles for you. You should find them in the chairs uh, in front of you or underneath you. And uh, page, I believe, 646 in those Bibles that you'll, uh, you'll kind of find there. And, of course, let me just also say that if you're a guest with us today and you don't own a Bible, you just flat out don't have one, uh, do us a favor. Take one of ours. Make it a gift from us to you. Happy Daylight Savings Day. I don't know, whatever, you know. You guys are here at church on Daylight Savings. So, honestly, we love you more than the people who aren't. And uh, so that's good. So thanks for being here uh, this morning. But if you need a Bible, grab one. Make it a gift from us to you, Jonah chapter four. All right, and as you're flipping there, um, let me recap a little bit. So uh, in a nutshell, what we've said in this series is we said that the book of Jonah, really what it's about, if you were to condense it down to its, to its just its, its, uh, its irreducible, you know, message, we said that what Jonah is all about is it's about God's extravagant grace. That's what Jonah is all about. It's about God's limitless, boundless, lavish, earth-shattering magnificent, insert other synonyms that, that mean the same thing, grace. God's grace is off the charts. God's grace is bigger than we can imagine. It's wider than we can fathom. It's higher than we even understand. God's grace is beyond what we understand. And that's what the book of Jonah is trying to communicate to us. And what we've been saying is that, man, for most of us, we like that. Like, we, 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 really, we really like this idea in theory and in concept of a God of grace, Right, we, we, especially this culture, man, we are drawn to that idea that God is a gracious God. In fact, if you're a person that maybe is like, I've heard the word grace, but I'm not exactly sure what it means. Let me just give you a couple definitions. There's a bunch of different definitions that people have of grace, but a couple famous ones. Uh, uh, some people define grace this way, that grace is God's unmerited favor. Uh, that God loves us just because he loves us. There's, there's nothing you did to deserve it. It's unmerited. There's nothing that you can do to earn it. God just likes us, right? That's the idea of grace. Uh, another person defined it this way. Uh, they said that God's grace is basically that you and I don't get what we deserve. Uh, we get better than we deserve. So, so we deserve punishment or God is holy and we're not. And so because of that, we deserve to be out of his presence. But God gives us better than what we deserve. And so, like I said, in theory and in concept, 
I think most of us would say we really like this idea of God's grace, right? I mean, we sing about it. We talk about it. Most of the song, we just sang a song about God's amazing, this is amazing grace. We like that. And I think in concept and in theory, we're drawn to this idea of grace. But here's what I want to talk about today. I think that if you actually think about it, practically speaking, not in concept, not in theory, not just in theology, but I mean in like reality, that, that when you really start to dig into the implications of grace, what it unearths is that really many of us, and myself included, have a problem with grace, all right? That, that grace, if you re- not in theory, but I mean in practice, if you actually think about it, sometimes grace can be infuriating. And, and some of you are like, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, let me, let me just try to illustrate what I'm saying. So in the um, mid-'80s, there was a story that I think really drew out the infuriating nature with grace, the problem that we have. Some of you might remember in the mid-'80s, some of you weren't even born yet, but in the mid-'80s, there was this uh, conflict that was taking place in Northern Ireland. Very, very, very dramatic conflict between the Irish and the British. Of course, the British at that time, uh, they had power over the Irish, and so there was an uprising that took place. There was a a rebel group uh, called the IRA, uh, it was the, it was, uh, the, the, the Irish group that kind of came, the Republic, the Irish Republic, and they started to rebel against the British. And of course, as a result of that, some of you might remember, there was some terrible things that took place, bombings and terrorist attacks and all kinds of stuff. And in the midst of that, that season in the mid-80s, there was one story that happened um, that caught the world by storm and introduced a controversy um, that, that really made kind of a global effect. And it was a story that centered around a guy named Gordon Wilson. So Gordon Wilson, and some of you might even remember this, Gordon Wilson uh, was an Irish man. He lived in Northern Ireland during, in 1987 during the time of this conflict. And uh, long story short, basically, he was a Christian. So he had Christian values. He wanted nothing to do with the conflict and, uh, and those type of things. And so one day, it was a national holiday in Ireland. He went to one of the major cities in Ireland to celebrate this national holiday with his family. And there was a bombing that took place. And so what happened was, as a result of this bombing, there was a building that fell over, and it fell on Gordon Wilson and on his daughter. He was with his daughter when the building fell. And so they were trapped underneath the rubble. And what happened was that Gordon Wilson walked away relatively unscathed, miraculously. uh, But his daughter, hours later, died. And what became so controversial about this story was not the bombing, but it was what Gordon Wilson said only 48 hours after the death of his daughter in a BBC interview. And let me just read to you what he said. So there's an interview with BBC. Gordon Wilson was describing with anguish uh, the last conversation that he had with his daughter and his feelings towards her. He said this. He said, she held my hand tightly and she gripped me as hard as she could. And she said, Daddy, I love you very much. And those were her exact words to me. And those were her last words that I ever heard her say. And, 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 I mean, just as a parent, you can imagine how gut-wrenching that would be. But then, listen to this. To the astonishment of the listeners, Wilson went on to add, but I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sorts of talk is not going to bring her back to life. She was a great wee lassie, right? He was Irish. She was a pet. He said, but she's dead. She's in heaven, and we shall meet again. I pray for these men. I pray for them tonight, and I pray for them every night. 48 hours after these men killed his daughter, Gordon Wilson says in an interview, he says, um, man, the last words she said, she loved me and I miss her. It was terrible. He said, but those men who did this to her, I wish them no ill will. 
I wish them no harm. Any kind of dirty talk isn't going to bring her back from the dead. And he says, so I pray for them. I pray for them every night. I pray for them tonight, and I pray for them every night. And this took the world by storm. And it created a controversy, and there was debate, and there was, there, was, there was people who were saying, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And there was people that were saying, this is terrible. How could he do this? In fact, one journalist, a woman by the name of Mary McLeese, uh, she, I think, so well articulated the controversy that happened as a result of Gordon Wilson's statement. Here's what she said. I'll show it to you. She said this. She said about Gordon Wilson, his words shamed us. His words shamed us. They caught us off guard. They sounded so different from what we expected and what we were used to. They brought stillness with them. They carried a sense of transcendence into a place so ugly that we could hardly bear to watch. So she says, when he said that, no one was expecting that. I mean, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of war, in the midst of hate crimes, all of a sudden you have this guy saying, I forgive and I love and I pray and I wish no ill intentions on these people. It was amazing. But then she goes on, and this is what she says. But he had his detractors and unbelievably bags of hate mail. People sent Gordon Wilson bags of hate mail. How dare you forgive, they shouted. What kind of father are you who can forgive your daughter's killers? It was as if they had never heard the command to love and forgive before. As one church-going critic said to me on the subject of Gordon Wilson, surely the poor man must have been in shock as if to offer love and forgiveness is a sign of mental weakness instead of spiritual strength. You see, there was a controversy that took place, and the controversy was all centered around grace. And what this story brought up to the surface is that there is a, we like grace in concept, all right? We like it in theory. But once you start to get to the implications of grace, I think what we come to find out is that sometimes grace can be infuriating because here's the infuriating thing about grace. Here's the problem I think that we have with grace if you really think about it. It's this, that God loves your enemy, that God loves your ex-husband and your ex-wife, that God loves your ex-friend, that God loves your abuser, and God loves your accuser as much as he does you. That God wants grace for them as much as he wants it for you. And, and I think if we're really honest, when we hear that, we got a problem. We got a problem because some of you, man, you've been really hurt. I don't just mean like, oh, you know, they, they stole a couple bucks from me or they lied to me that one time or that was that one time that she said that thing about me, about my hair and blah, blah, blah. Not that kind of stuff. Some of you, man, your heart has been shattered by another person. Some of you, someone has taken something from you physically, sexually, in some way. And so when I, when I say to you, God loves your enemy as much as he loves you and that he wants to extend grace to that person just like he wants to extend grace to you. See, all of a sudden, there is a dilemma. And there's a controversy because we're saying to ourselves, okay, wait a minute, I liked the grace thing in theory, but hold on a minute. How far does this actually go? How serious are we about this whole grace God thing? And there's a problem that we have with grace. Let me just say, that if you've ever felt that way, if you've ever experienced that tension of the problem of grace, then you can relate with Jonah. Because this is exactly where we're about to find Jonah in Jonah chapter 4. We're going to take a look at this. Before we do, once again, let me just kind of recap everything that's happened from chapters 1 to 3. So in a nutshell, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. So God comes to Jonah. He says, I want you to go to the biggest, baddest, most evil city um, you know, ever, and I want you to go preach to those people. And Jonah, rather than listening to God, the Bible tells us that he gets up, he goes 180 degrees in the opposite direction to a place called Tarshish. He, t- he runs for the hills, right? And of course, the Bible tells us that God, in his grace, comes after Jonah, 
uh, rescues Jonah miraculously and then gives Jonah a second chance. And so last week, if you were here, Jonah goes, to, goes into Nineveh. He actually listens to God and he begins to preach to the city and something amazing happens in chapter three. You guys remember this? Jonah is preaching in a five-word sermon to a, a, uh, five words in the Hebrew language, eight words in the English language. In a five-word sermon, the Bible tells us that this city, which was the most the biggest, baddest, most evil, it was like Sin City. Like imagine Las Vegas or imagine something worse like Pittsburgh. Like imagine that. It was like so terrible. And he comes in and in this five-word sermon, he preaches and the entire city breaks out in a revival. I mean, they repent. They, they start to turn from their evil ways. They turn to God. They start crying to God. The Bible says that the king of Nineveh actually gets off of his throne. He takes off his kingly robes. He gets down in the dirt and he cries out to God. I mean, this is a revival. This is a great awakening, right? And so this is this amazing scene. And you would think, you would think that the book of Jonah would end with chapter three, that, that, that Jonah runs from God. God saves Jonah. Jonah goes back. He preaches to Nineveh. The whole city repents. It's an amazing, great awakening. A revival breaks out. Everyone lives happily ever after. The end. That's how you think that the book of Jonah should end. But it doesn't end there because there's a chapter four. And so what happens in chapter four? Well, before we look at what happens in chapter four, let me tell you what I think would happen in chapter four. This is just me. Maybe you can relate with this. I would think, now just think about this for a minute. Jonah was a prophet, right? So that meant that he was a professional God dude. He was a minister, right? He would preach and he would teach the Bible. His job was to tell people about God and to help people understand God. That was his job. And he just went into the biggest, baddest, most horrendous evil city imaginable in that time. There was the capital city of the most powerful uh, force in the world, the Assyrian Empire. And he preached a five-word sermon and the whole place turns to God. So you would think that for Jonah, this is a career high, right? I mean, few men in history have ever had the privilege of being used by God like Jonah was in Jonah chapter three. And so if it was me and there was a chapter four, I would imagine that what's happening in chapter four is this is the after party, right? So this is like the whole city is breaking out into celebration. The whole city is in revival mode, right? They're partying. They get the DJ. He's spinning records, right? They play, they're playing Don't Stop Believing by Jerry. Don't stop. And they get Jonah and they're hoisting him on their shoulders and they're putting, you know, Gatorade over his head and it's like slow-mo moment you know it's like yeah and then it ends that's what I would think would happen in in chapter four but watch what happens in chapter four watch Jonah's response after this incredible ministry victory watch what happens verse one but to Jonah this seemed very wrong and he became angry now, this is so unexpected. Jonah, he, he, after this incredible revival takes place, a five-word sermon, which, by the way, I am entirely incapable of doing, so don't get your hopes up, right? Five-word sermon, whole city turns to God. And Jonah's response, the Bible says, he says, this seems very, very wrong. And he became angry. In fact, in the original language, the, 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 uh, the literal translation, I thought this was fascinating, is this, it was evil to Jonah, and with great evil, it burned him. And so Jonah was like, this is wrong. This is, this is beyond wrong. This is evil. And it burned him. It infuriated him. He was seething with anger. So Jonah's response is that he is, he is infuriated from what God has done. Why is he so mad? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 2. 
So it says this. So Jonah prayed to the Lord. All right, let's pause there for a minute. So this is the second time in the book of Jonah that we see Jonah praying. Some of you might remember the first time. The first time is in Jonah chapter 2. The setting is that Jonah is inside of a fish. And he's crying out to God, thanking God for his grace, thanking God for his mercy, how God has saved his life. And now Jonah's praying again. Now, this is a very different tone than his prayer in chapter 2. Look at it. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to, that is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. So here's what Jonah says. He says, God, isn't this what I said was going to happen? I told you when I was back in Israel and you told me to go to Nineveh, I knew that you wanted to do this. I knew that there was going to be a revival. I knew that you were going to break out into amazing grace. And so that's why I ran. That's why I got on that boat and I headed halfway across the world because I knew this was going to happen. God, I told you so. I told you so. And what's Jonah's, what's Jonah's problem? What's his protest? Look at this next part. This is amazing. He says this. He says, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life away, for it is better for me to die than live. This is Jonah's problem with God. God, you know, he's like, this whole thing happens, and then Jonah's like, this is wrong. This is all wrong. I'm mad about this. I am ticked. And it's like, well, what's wrong, Jonah? Well, I knew it. I knew that God is gracious and that he's compassionate and that he's slow in his anger. He's abounding in love and he relents in showing calamity. I knew it. God, you're too nice. I knew you were going to forgive those people. You're always forgiving people. You're always so gracious, God. I knew it. I knew this was going to happen, right? Isn't that funny? I mean, it's funny because this is the con, that verse, I mean, what an amazing verse. God is slow to anger and abounding in love. He relents from showing calamity. He's gracious. I mean, what an amazing verse. That, by the way, is almost a direct quotation from Exodus 34, the words that God says about himself. Jonah knows his theology, right? He said, God, I knew this about you. I knew you were gracious. And it's funny because that, the content of that verse is the content of all of the songs that we sing. It's the content of all of the, the things that we praise God for. But you see, Jonah says, no, that's my protest. That's my problem. You're gracious, God. And you see, Jonah's got, a, Jonah's got a problem with God's grace. He's got a problem, and he's infuriated with God's grace. Now, why is it that he's so frustrated? Well, if you were here last week, you might remember, we talked about the Ninevites for a long time last week. And we said that the Ninevites, there was a capital city of the Assyrian empire, and the Assyrians and the Ninevites would have been the Israelites' greatest enemy. And so Jonah was an Israelite, and the Assyrians did terrible things, horrendous, I mean, inhumane, monstrous things to people. Last week, we talked about that. They would flay people alive. They would, they would impale people on poles and put them around. There. It was just monstrous things that these guys did. And so, so for Jonah, you see, you got to understand, this was personal. In fact, it's probable that he had family members and friends who would have been terrorized by these people. That's very, very, very possible. And so Jonah says, God, when you told me to go to Nineveh, the reason I ran is because I knew that you had it in your mind that you wanted to show grace to those people. And I don't want you to show grace to those people. I wanted you to destroy those people. I hate those people. I can't stand those people. And you see, what Jonah's struggling with here is he's struggling with the promiscuity of God's grace. He's struggling with the limitless, boundless nature of the grace of God. He says, God, does your grace know no end? Seriously? Is that how far? And I'm infuriated about it. See, and all of a sudden, when we read in Jonah, we come to realize 
that while Jonah has stopped running physically in chapter 2, and he's been outwardly obedient to God in chapter 3, we find out in chapter 4 that Jonah's still running in his heart. He is still running. He is out of tune with the heart of God. And listen, that brings up a really, really strong reality for those of us who follow Jesus. I know not everyone in this room follows Jesus, and that's cool. Some of you are investigating that. But for those of us who follow Jesus, this brings up a very strong reality, and that's this. It's this, that outwardly, we can be obedient to God, and inwardly, we can be entirely out of tune with the heart of God and the heart of his grace. It's very possible, right? And so Jonah says, God, I'm mad about this. It isn't right. You're wrong about this. He says, God, I just hate, I hate that you're so gracious and you're so compassionate. And so I love what he says. He's like, so you know what, God, just kill me. Just kill me. It's Jonah's response. Now, what does God do to Jonah? Now, before we look at what God does, let me tell you what I would do if I was God, which let's just thank God for a minute. I'm not God. But okay, so if I was God and, and we had, and we just went through this whole ordeal, Jonah 1, chapter 1 to 3, Jonah has run from God. He has been disobedient. He has been foolish. He's done all this, this, this dumb stuff. And now Jonah has the audacity in chapter 4 to say, God, I'm mad because of your grace. So just kill me. Now, if I was God, here's what I would do. I'd say, you know what, Jonah? Wish granted. You're done, man. Bam, you're dead. Lightning bolt. You know, I don't, something crazy happens. He's gone, right? See, because in my mind, that's what I would be doing. I'd be thinking, Jonah, I just gave you a second chance. And, uh, you know, you, you blew that now. And now you're angry about it. So you know what? You're being a little turd. We're finished. We're done, right? If that's the way you're going to be, I'll, I'll hire someone else, man. I don't need you. That's what I would do if I was God. So let's thank God I'm not God. Because like I said, the, the, the theme of the book of Jonah is it's about God's extravagant grace. So how do you think God's going to respond? Well, I'll tell you how he's going to respond. Graciously and patiently. And how does he respond? Graciously and patiently, God asks Jonah a question. This question is brilliant, by the way. I want you to see what he does. Look at verse 4. So the Lord replied to Jonah, <clears throat> Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Now, I just want you to see something real quick. This question is brilliant. It, is, it shows the wisdom of God. Not only is it, is, it, is it just a brilliant question, it's also brilliantly timed, right? And, and what shows the brilliance and the timing of this question is actually one word right in the middle is the word you. He says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, let's think about this for a minute. Two chapters ago, where were you? You, you were um, in the ocean, sinking to your death, crying out for my grace. And what happened, Jonah? What happened? You were running from me. You were being foolish and disobedient, and you were being rebellious, and you didn't deserve grace. You deserved punishment, and you were drowning. Remember that, Jonah? Remember that? And what happened when you called out to me? Remember? I showed you grace. You are the recipient of incredible grace. So Jonah, Jonah, do you have any right? You? You? Jonah, that was two chapters ago. That was two chapters ago. You still smell like tuna, right? You have seaweed hanging from your ears. Have you so quickly forgotten and lost sight of the fact that you were the recipient of such incredible grace? And now you've lost sight of it and you're angry that I'm showing my grace to somebody else. I wrote this down in my notes. If you're taking notes, maybe you want to jot this down. This is the way I put it. I said, God's grace is infuriating when I forget God's grace to me. You know, when God, you know how God's grace becomes infuriating to us? 
It becomes infuriating when we forget the grace that God has shown us. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we, we cannot lose sight and forget the grace that God has shown to us. And grace is infuriating when I forget the grace that God has shown. See, Jonah, two chapters ago, you were the recipient of incredible, lavish, extravagant grace. And now you're sitting here saying that you have a problem with me showing grace to another person, how quickly you have forgotten, how quickly you have lost sight of my grace to you. It actually reminds me, this question that God asked Jonah reminds me a lot of a parable in the New Testament. Some of you might remember in Matthew 18, there's a parable about the unmerciful servant. And you don't have to flip there. I'll just summarize it for you. But basically, Jesus tells this parable. And he says, once upon a time, there was a master and there was a servant. And this servant owed his master an impossible sum of money. He owed his master 10,000 talents, which back in that time, that was equivalent to the national deficit. So just an impossible amount of money. And so the servant comes to his master and he says, Master, please, please show me grace. Show me mercy. Give me more time and I will pay you back. And the Bible says that this master does something unprecedented. And he looks at his servant and he dismisses him. And he says, listen, man, I'll forgive you of all of your debt and I will let you go free. He gives him grace. He forgives him his debt. He gives him what he doesn't deserve. He gives him better than what he deserves. But the Bible tells us, Jesus says in this parable, that very same servant, the same day, turns around to a fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii, which compared to the 10,000 talents is a minuscule amount, and he was unwilling to forgive his fellow servant. And so Jesus concludes the parable with a question. And what is the question? It's very similar to Jonah. Here it is. I'll show it to you. Matthew 18 32 to 33, it says, then the master called his servant in. He said, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? That's the same question. God looks at Jonah. He says, Jonah, what right do you have to be angry? You've, you've lost sight. You've forgotten about the grace that I've shown you. And listen, for some of us who are here today, who, ha who have bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness towards other people. We're unwilling to show grace to others in our lives. I think God would graciously and patiently look at us, and I think he would ask us the same question. Come on, man. What right do you have to be angry? Have you so quickly forgotten the grace that I've bestowed to you? Have you so quickly lost sight of that grace? You see, we become infuriated with grace when we forget the grace that God has shown us. But maybe this is it. Maybe it's not that Jonah forgot God's grace. Maybe that's not what's going on. Maybe Jonah remembered God's grace, but maybe somewhere in his mind, he thought to himself that for whatever reason, he was more deserving of God's grace than the Ninevites were, right? Maybe that's what was going on. I can imagine this happening. I can imagine Jonah thinking, into, thinking to himself, you know what? Uh, I'm a prophet, right? So I'm kind of like good with, I'm a kind of a God guy, right? So God's kind of my profession. And I'm an Israelite, so, you know, I'm one of, like, God's chosen people, so that's sort of a big deal. And so clearly, like, yes, I've, done, I've made some mistakes, but, like, clearly God's going to show me grace because I'm an Israelite, and I, I worship God, and I'm a God person, right? So I deserve God's grace. But the Ninevites, I mean, these guys are terrorists. These guys are inhumane. They don't love God or worship God, so they're undeserving of God's grace, and I'm deserving of God's grace. I wrote this in my notes one of, the, one of the reasons we, we become infuriated with God's grace is because we forget about his grace. But here's another thing. God's grace is infuriating when I minimize God's grace to me. When I minimize God's grace to me. 
You guys, for those of us who follow Jesus, and like I said, I know not everyone in this room follows Jesus, but for those of us who do, there is a very dangerous and subtle trap that we can fall into. Very dangerous and very subtle. And it's when we start to come to the place where we start to believe that somehow because of our moral track record or somehow because we've committed less serious sins than other people have, that that means that we are more deserving of the grace of God. This is a very dangerous and a subtle thing that happens. So what happens is we start to compare ourselves to other people, right? And so we'll say things like, well, you know, I've like lied and I've cheated and like I've been proud, I've been like proud and stuff like that. But I've never done like any, I've done like JV sins, but I've never done like the varsity sins, right? Like I've never like, you know, rooted for the Steelers or like have, you know, listened to Nickelback. Like I don't do that stuff, but like I've done this other stuff and that's really bad. And, and, but come on, you know, so I've never like, I've never like committed adultery, never had an affair before. And so clearly like God's going to show grace to me because I've made some mistakes. I'm imperfect. You know, no one's perfect and everything, but I've never done that. I've never cheated on my spouse. Or maybe you're a person, you're like, well, you know, I had an affair. I cheated on my spouse, but come on, like everyone does that, right? That's not a big deal. And so I did that and that's not good, but God has forgiven me and God shows me grace. But I've like, I've never killed anyone before. I've never killed anyone. Or maybe, maybe you're like, uh, you know, I killed someone one time, um, but I never killed 10 people. So that's a good thing, right? And you see what happens is we, we start to somehow believe that because of our moral track record or because we haven't done more serious sins like those other people have, that somehow we're more deserving of God's grace. Here's why that's so dangerous. The moment we do that, we're not dealing with grace anymore. By sheer definition, grace is unmerited favor. It means this, you can do nothing to deserve it. It's not that you were somehow better than that person or that God saw something special in you because of whatever, that's none of it. God's grace is sheerly because of his favor. It's entirely from him. We don't earn God's grace, right? And so the moment we start saying, well, you know, those people don't deserve God's grace, but I deserve God's grace. We're not dealing with grace anymore. You're outside of the realm of grace. If I asked you today, um, why, do you, why, why should God show you grace? If you answer that question by starting with I, you've already misunderstood grace because you, that's not how you answer that question. See, this is what happened to Jonah. Jonah got to a place where basically, here's what he said. He said, God, I want your grace to be big enough to include me, but I want it to be small enough to keep them out. God, I want your grace to be big enough to cover my sins and my mistakes and my running and my blunders, but I want it to be small enough to keep the Ninevites out. They don't deserve to be in here with me and with my fellow countrymen. And you see, you guys, the dangerous thing is when we start to become infuriated with God's grace, when we start to have a problem with God's grace, we do the same thing. We start to say, man, God, I want your grace to be custom built to me. I want it to be big enough that, that you forgive me for the things that I've done and the things that I, places I've been and the ways that I've failed you. But I want it small enough that it keeps the, the people who hurt me and harmed me. Like I said, man, for some of you, you've experienced some serious injury in your life. People have really hurt you. And you're like, I want God's grace to be small enough that they're not allowed in. See, this is one of the things that can be infuriating about God's grace is that it's not our grace. It's his grace. So we don't have the right to determine who's in and who's out. We don't have that right. God himself is the one who determines who's in and who's out. And so God, so God looks at Jonah and says, do you, do you have any right, Jonah, to be angry? Do you have any right? And I love Jonah's response. How does Jonah respond to that question? Look at verse five. This is awesome. Jonah 
had gone out, and he sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade, and he waited to see what would happen to the city. All right, so God, God asked Jonah a question. Do you have any right to be angry? What's Jonah's response? He just walks away. He just, he just pouts away. The Bible says he goes up into the east of the city, makes himself a shelter, and he sits down to wait and see what's going to happen to the city. Now, all commentators agree what Jonah is doing right here is basically he's saying, I hope that God changes his mind, and I hope that he destroys the city of Nineveh. And so I'm going to go up on a hill. I'm going to get out of the blast radius in case God sends like a nuclear bomb or something or does like a Sodom Gomorrah thing. Like I'm going to go up on this hill outside of the blast radius. I'm going to build myself a little shelter. I'm going to sit in a lawn chair and I'm going to sit back and, and hope that God destroys these people. That's what Jonah does. Goes up to this place. He sits down, makes himself a shelter, and he waits expectantly for God to give these people what they deserve. And you see, I think, I think this is, in my mind, this is the position of Jonah, right? Jonah walks away from God. God's like, do you have any right to be angry? He's like, nah, 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 and walks away. Goes up east of the city on this hill, builds a shelter. This is Jonah's position. This is his play, all right? Arms crossed, right? Definitely has to have his arms crossed. Looking down, because he's on a hill, nose up, right? Frown on his face. And he's just like, nah, Nineveh. Stupid people. I'm just going to wait here. I'm going to watch and see and hope that the worst happens. Stupid Nineveh. This is God so gracious all the time. Right. That's Jonah. This is where Jonah's at right now. All right. He is, he is in bitterness. He is stuck in unforgiveness. Meanwhile, he has dissociated himself with Nineveh. There's a revival taking place. I mean, people are, there's joy and there's celebration. All of that is available to Jonah. But he's up on this hill. And he's got this little shelter of his own self-righteousness. And he's looking down at these people, hoping and waiting that God will destroy them. I put this in my notes. If you're taking notes, maybe you want to jot it down. God's grace is infuriating when we become preoccupied with what others deserve rather than preoccupied with the grace that I didn't. You know when grace becomes infuriating? Here's one of the ways grace becomes infuriating. When we become preoccupied, it consumes us with what other people deserve, with what, when other people have hurt me, I become consumed with what they deserve rather than the grace that I don't deserve. When that happens, grace becomes infuriating. Let's just be honest. Let's just be honest. When we get to that place that we are more focused on what other people deserve, the person who hurts you, the person who harms you, your ex-husband, your ex-wife, your ex-friend, whoever it might be, when we become so consumed with them getting what they deserve, and, and, and we miss out and we lose focus on the grace that we didn't deserve, what happens is we start to take a similar position to Jonah, don't we? We do. We go up to some high place, metaphorically speaking. We distance ourselves. We sit up on some high place. We perch ourselves somewhere. We build a shelter of our own self-righteousness, and we look down expectantly, waiting for that person to get what they deserve. And this happens to us, man. We sit there and we, cel- we celebrate in their failures, secretly or maybe even publicly. And, and, we, and we, we struggle with their successes. And so we, we sit there, we look back, we sit on our, this, this pedestal in our, in our self-righteousness and we, and we wait for God's judgment. And so we just sit there and we're like, oh, wow. you see him? You just see him? I know why he does that. I know why he does that. He's just trying to get attention. He's always trying to get attention. He's always doing that. Look at him. Look at, look, what are you, look at him walking. Look at him walking with his shoes on. Which is that guy, right? 
And we just, we get this thing. I don't know what it is. This Jonah thing goes on inside of our heart. And we look at people that way. Oh, I know why she does that. I know why she does that. The only reason she does that, she thinks she's better than everyone else. You can tell she thinks she's, you just tell. You can just see by the way she flips her hair. She just thinks everyone is better than everybody, right? And we just get this pouting, sitting up on my hill in the, in the shelter of my self-righteousness. We sit in the shelter of our own home in a comfortable chair, you know, perusing Facebook, looking at the people who we, we, we hate the most, people that hurt us the most, our ex-husband, our ex-wife, your ex-girlfriend. You're, you're looking at him. You're like, oh, I see. Oh, oh, look. Oh, he got a new job. Oh, he got a promotion. Mm, that's nice. Must be nice. Mm, wonderful. Got a promotion. That's great. Well, I hope, I, hope he lo- I hope he loves this promotion. I hope he does really, really well. I hope he makes a lot of money. Then I hope he gets mono. And then, I ho- and then I hope he gets athlete's foot. I hope he dies. I hope he dies. You know, like, oh, I see my ex, oh, my ex-girlfriend. Oh, yeah, she broke my heart and everything, and that was terrible what she did. Oh, I see she got a new boyfriend. Oh, neat. Mm, that's awesome. They look real happy. Look at that. Oh, they're at the beach. So happy. Look at them. I hope they get married. I hope they have 20 kids, and I hope their kids are exactly like them. <laughs> and then I hope they die. You know, it always goes to that somehow. And, and uh, hey, listen, I'm, I'm kind of making light of that, but can I, I'll just be honest with you guys for a minute. Can I just admit to you? that the desire to see people who have harmed me get what they deserve is alive and well in my heart. I hate that, man. I do. I hate it. It's alive and well. Can I just admit to you that there are times that I secretly celebrate in the failures of people who have hurt me? And there are times that I see people who have harmed me and they're succeeding and I struggle with it and I'm infuriated by it. It frustrates me. Can I just be honest with you guys and tell you that in my best moments, I hate that, man. I hate it. And you know why I hate it so much? Because our Heavenly Father, He has none of that. There, there, is, not, there is none of that in, in, God's, in God's heart. None of it. You know what the Bible says about God? The Bible says that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God does not take any joy at all in that. At all. He always, always prefers grace over judgment. Always. He loves mercy. And the Bible says that those of us who follow Jesus, we ought to be like him. And we ought to love mercy. We ought to love it. Love grace. God loves grace. And you see, here's what happened to Jonah and here's what happens to us. Is we become self-decaying cul-de-sacs of God's grace. Did you guys ever hear that statement before? A self-decaying cul-de-sac. You guys know what a cul-de-sac is, right? You can drive in, but you can't like go through. You have to turn around. It's a cul-de-sac. It's a dead end, right? It stops. It's like, a, it's like we can become called self-decaying cul-de-sacs of God's grace. God's grace comes into us, but it never flows out of us, right? We can be d- dead ends of God's grace. We, be- we can become grace dams, for some of you, that might be the only thing you remember about today is that I said grace damn, right? And that's okay if you did. But, but it, like, it stops in us. God's grace flows into us, and we're willing to receive it, and we're willing to accept it, but it never flows out of us. We're never willing to allow ourselves to be conduits of God's grace and allow it to flow through us. And you see, here's the problem with that. When that happens, when we become cul-de-sacs of God's grace, it destroys us. It kills us on the inside. It makes us bitter. It makes us angry. It makes us like Jonah. And listen, it steals our joy. There was, there was joy available to Jonah, the joy of the Lord, the grace that God lavished onto these people. He could have been part of something huge, but instead he was perched by himself up on this hill. And he, listen, 
God loves you too much to leave you bitter. Right? He, he loves you too much for that. He loves Jonah too much to leave him bitter. He's like, Jonah, what, dude, come on, man. Seriously, you're angry, you're bitter, you're being a pouty little kid about all this kind of stuff. There's joy that's available to you, man. See, one of the, one of the most incredible things about the book of Jonah, in my opinion, is that it, it demonstrates the levels of God's grace. And man, once you see it, it's unreal because God, show, like, God shows grace to those of us who run from God. That's in Jonah, absolutely. God shows grace to the most monstrous, inhumane, terrible people that you can imagine. That's the Ninevites. That's in, that's in Jonah. But I think one of the most surprising things about the book of Jonah is that it tells us that God shows grace to the most self-righteous, unforgiving, bitter people. And I think it's amazing. And I think that nowhere in this book does that come out more than in the way that the book ends. The way that the book of Jonah ends is amazing. And next week, you're going to have to come back because we're going to finish up chapter 4. But before we do that, I just want you to pay attention real quick. I want to draw your attention to the last verse in the book of Jonah. Like I said, next week, we'll kind of walk through the rest of the chapter. But I want you to pay attention because the book of Jonah ends in the strangest, most peculiar way imaginable. It actually ends with a question. It's one of the only books in the Bible that ends with a question. How weird is this for an ending? Look at verse 11. So God is talking to Jonah. He says, and should I not have been concerned for the great city of Nineveh in which there were more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? Question mark. The end. You're like, that, that's how the book ends? What, what in the world? That's how the story ends? It seems peculiar and weird. In fact, I was talking to one of my buddies on the phone this week about Jonah. He's like, man, this is an incredible book. This thing is like rocking my face off. But he's like, did they like leave out parts? Because the book just finishes, you know? And I told him, I said, it seems peculiar. I said, but in my opinion, that's the most brilliant part of this book. It is brilliant. It's amazing. And why is it brilliant? Okay, let me try to explain it this way. So the book of Jonah ends with a question. And, and this book is remarkably similar to another story in the New Testament that also ends in the same way. Some of you might know what I'm talking about. It's the story of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son goes like this. I'll summarize it for you. So Jesus tells a, a parable. He says, once upon a time, there was a father. He had two kids. The older son was the goody two-shoes, never left his dad, always did the right thing. The younger son was the black sheep, the screw-up, always did everything wrong. So one day, the younger son takes his father's inheritance, and he runs away from home. He blows all of his money on prostitutes and on partying. And then one day, he comes to his senses and says, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I've made a big mistake in my life. I need to go back to my father. Maybe, just maybe, he might find it in his heart to forgive me. So he goes back home, and the Bible tells us that while he's walking home, something unbelievable happens, that his father sees him off in a distance, and he runs to him, and he tackles him in love, and he smothers him with kisses, and the son tries to ask for forgiveness, but the father's like, forget it, it's finished. He puts a ring on his finger, and he puts a robe on him, and they have a big party. They kill a fattened calf, and it's awesome, and this entire celebration takes place. It's God's unbelievable grace, and you would think the story ends there, but it doesn't. A lot like Jonah, because then the camera pans over to the field, not too far off from the party, What's happening off in that field? Well, there's the older brother by himself. And what's he doing? He's seething with anger, just like Jonah. And the father, in the same way that he ran out to his younger son, he comes out to his older son. And he says to his older son, he says, buddy, what's the matter? And he says, I'm so mad that you would show grace to him. 
I'm infuriated that you're compassionate. You're slow to anger, abounding in love, relenting from showing calamity. He's not getting what he deserves. And you know what the father says? He says, son, you've been with me this whole time and you've had everything. And he says to him, your brother, your brother was lost. Now he's found. So why don't you come join the party? I want to invite you into my joy. I want, you, I want to invite you into my heart instead of staying out here with your bitter. I love you too much to leave you bitter. And, and this is brilliant. The, the, the prodigal son ends open-ended. The book of Jonah ends open-ended with a question. And why is that? Here's why. Because you come to realize that the book of Jonah is not really about Jonah. The book of Jonah includes Jonah. The book of Jonah is about you. The book of Jonah is about me. So that, that last question is like a spear that God throws into the heart of Jonah. And at the last minute, Jonah moves and it hits us. Boom, in our heart. And we go, oh my gosh, I'm Jonah, right? This whole time I was laughing at him for being such a jerk. And I, he was doing all this stuff. And I was like, how stupid could you be? And then the last minute I'm like, oh, I see what you did, God. This is a mirror, right? It's showing it's God with wisdom and with, with, um, with such incredible precision, like a surgical knife cuts us open and reveals to us what's on the inside. And it ends with a question, and here's why. Because God is inviting you, and he is inviting me into his heart. And he's saying, I love you too much to leave you bitter. I love you too much for that. I care, and you know what? My grace is available to you, even in your self-righteousness, even in your bitterness. My grace is available to you. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask the band to come up. <clears throat> and as they do, I just want to close with a question. That's it. And uh, then I want to pray for us. The question I want to ask you this morning is this. Now, at the beginning of the service, I asked this question. You may have had a different answer. But here's the question I want to ask you after we have went through all of this. That's this. Do you have a, do you have a problem with God's grace? Do you have a problem? Are there, are there people in your life that you are unwilling to unable to, um, unrelenting, that you do not want them to have grace? Are there people that you secretly rejoice in their failures and you're infuriated by their successes? An ex-husband, an ex-wife, ex-boyfriend. Listen, and listen when I say this, I, I, don't, I want you to understand, I get that some of you have endured serious pain. And I, I don't just mean like, yeah, you know, you know, you, they did something bad. I mean, some of you, man, it's been, it's, you, someone has devastated you. They, they have taken what, what normal life was and they have redefined it because of something that they've done to you. And for some of you, like I said, you've been abused. Someone has taken from, some, something from you physically. Someone has taken something from you sexually. And that's, I'm, I, listen, I am not for a second trying to minimize your pain. Not at all. Please hear me in that. All I'm trying to do is I'm trying to maximize God's grace. The level of your pain reveals to us the depths of God's grace. God's grace is deeper than you know, is deeper than you know. And for some of us right now this morning, man, we are clinging to bitterness. We are clinging to resentment. We are clinging to unforgiveness. We are self-decaying cul-de-sacs. God's grace flows easily into us, but it does not flow out. Let me just tell you that if that's the case, God loves you too much to leave you bitter. And listen, you are forfeiting. You're forfeiting joy that's available to you. You are forfeiting all of the grace that God has available to you. And God doesn't want you to do that. And so here's what, here, here's what I want to challenge you to do this morning. As we worship and sing, 
would you just would you just talk to God? Would you take would you take those people? For some of you, you know them by name, man. You know them by name. And would you take those people and would you just bring them to Jesus? Would you just say, man, God, I I'm struggling, man. This this person, what they did to me, I can't I can't let this go. I'm struggling, and so God, I need to give them to you. I got to give this person to you. I have to release them into your hands. Help me to remember the grace that you gave to me. God, help me not minimize the grace you show me in my life and help me not be preoccupied with what they deserve. Help me to be preoccupied with the grace that I didn't deserve. God, would you transform me? Because God loves you too much to leave you bitter. So in this time, take some time, do some work with God, talk to him about these things. For some of you, you're like, I can't can't even imagine forgiving this person. It is impossible. I want to, but you don't understand. I can't. Would you, I just dare you, would you just ask God to give you the strength to do it? Would you just ask him? God, would you give me the strength? Would you give me the courage? Would you help me to release that person to you? Let's pray. Well, God, your grace to us is, uh, it's, it's ridiculous. Your grace is ridiculous. It really is. It's off the charts. And in theory and in concept, grace is neat and clean and it's tidy. But in practice, in reality, it's messy. And uh, Father, while, while we love, we love receiving your grace. We love that. I love that. I'm so thankful for the grace that I've been given. Be honest, sometimes it's infuriating. Be honest, God, sometimes I have a problem with your grace. God, sometimes I don't want you to be gracious. I don't want you to be patient. I don't want you to, to show mercy. I don't want you to relent in showing calamity. But Father, I pray that you would take that, that part of our hearts and you'd fix it. Help us to join you, that our hearts would be like your heart. Some of us aren't running outwardly. Some of us have never run outwardly from you. But in our hearts, man, we're running from you. Our hearts are out of tune. And so Father, I pray that you would tune our hearts to you for the joy set before us, that the joy of entering into your desires, your heart for our enemies. Father, I pray we'd be like you. Teach us to love mercy like you love mercy. You love us too much to leave us bitter. I'm so thankful that you're gracious even to self-righteous people like me who cling on to bitterness and unforgiveness, who quickly accept your grace but are slow to to give it to other people. God, forgive us and help us and be with us, God. Walk with us in grace in the difficult places. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.